Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the State of the Universe. This episode features Dr. Francis Halsen. He's a professor of physics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and the principal investigator of the Ice Cube Neutrino Observatory. And earlier this year, his name was attached to an incredible discovery, uh, an advancement for the entire field of astrophysics. Uh, in July 2018, uh, which was two months ago, uh, Ice Cube announced that they have traced an extremely high-energy neutrino that hit their detector in September 2017, back to its point of origin. Uh, the specifics of this discovery are talked about in the discussion itself, so you'll have to listen. But this is the first time that a neutrino detector has been used to locate an object in space, precisely. And it really is an incredible thing, and I, and I hope that you enjoy the discussion with Dr. Francis Halsen about this and the work that he's been putting in for decades leading up to this moment. Share the shit out of this. Enjoy the show, and remember that the, the one, thing, one thing you should take away from this episode that isn't directly related to science, you should take all of the scientific information, that's all important, but one thing you could take away that's not directly related to science is that it's okay to fuck up. So what if your experiment didn't work? You didn't meet your goals this week. You ran into barriers that weren't apparent. None of that matters. Keep moving forward. Keep walking towards your goals. Persistent baby steps beat the hell out of no steps at all. And that is how I sort of live my life. A one degree correction is infinitely better than no correction at all. So you're all fantastic, great people. And I hope you enjoy the show. This is the State of the Universe with your host, the one and only Brendan Drackler. Five, four, three, two, one. Francis, Fr Dr. Francis Halsen, how are you? This has been a big year for you. Talk to us about it. Well, it kind of is. I, I think uh, we realized something we have been working on for, uh, in my case, uh, intellectually at least 30 years and uh, actually building a detector uh, for the, the last 15 years so yeah it uh, and we finally pulled it off we found one source of cosmic rays yes talk to us about some people might not be familiar what is the discovery this year? What yeah. is what is Ice Cube, and what was your role in the entire project? Okay, that that are a lot of questions, but let <laughs> me start with the more important one. What was the discovery? Uh, you must, uh, as you realize, or we know very well, that is that the, the universe. We observe the universe you know, over the whole electromagnetic spectrum from uh, radio waves to very high energy gamma rays. But actually, the highest energy radiation that reaches us of the un from the universe is not radiation at all. It are protons and other nuclei. And they are uh, called cosmic rays, although they are not rays. They are atomic nuclei, mostly protons. And uh, we know about them, they were discovered more than a hundred years ago. And we have been looking for their origin ever, ever since. I mean, it's obviously an important outsta outstanding question. 
where the highest energy radiation from the universe comes from. And so I'm not sure we have solved the problem. We may or we may not have, but at least we have finally, finally identified one source of cosmic rays. And uh, that's what happened. And when I say we, it, we did it in an interesting way. It was not just Ice Cube. It was a whole multi-messenger campaign between some 20 telescopes that, uh, that clinched this identification of a, a source that emitted cosmic rays. Of course, it was started out with an Ice Cube neutrino. Right. And so for the, the listeners who might not know what multi-messenger astronomy is, this is a big deal in, t in today's world of astronomy and physics. Multi-messenger astronomy is most of the, the things we observe in the universe output radiation, light, electromagnetic radiation. And we can detect that through a variety of ways. We can use radio telescopes. We can use x-rays. We can use gamma rays. We can use visible light. Our, our eyes are two sets, or one set rather, of detectors. Multi-messenger astronomy opens that window up. It allows us to look at the universe with a different set of eyes, if you will. It allows us to use gravitational waves. What can gravitational waves tell us about the things in the universe? And in your case, we're using neutrinos. What can neutrinos tell us, or high-energy particles, cosmic rays, what can they tell us about the universe? Well, in this case, actually, it's important to point out this was the first true multi-messenger event. In other words, if multi-messenger means that you more than one telescope looks and more than one telescope that's looking in different wavelengths. And uh, different wavelengths now include, since the last year or two, it includes neutrinos, and gravitational waves. So you can just think of neutrinos and gravitational waves as just some other color of light when you think of the, it from the point of view of astronomy. But I want to emphasize this was the first multi-messenger event because uh, there were other multi-messenger events, you know, supernova have been seen in neutrinos and, and in light and uh, the gravitational wave uh, from a neutron star merger was seen also by the Fermi Gamma Ray Telescope. But in this case, the discovery could not have been made if not more than one telescope had looked. No, but no telescope individually would have made this observation. In other words, we send an alert, uh, Ice Cube send an alert of a very high energy neutrino coming from the direction of Orion. And, you know, we send a telegram. All this happens automatically, actually. Computers at the South Pole reconstruct the direction and then decide to send a message to the telescopes. And if no telescope had reacted to this, this would have been one more interesting neutrino for us, but not more. We have been seeing neutrinos like that since 2013, We've seen several hundred. And so nothing would have happened. Then, of course, the Fermi telescope realized that they were observing a blazar, an, an active galaxy, whose jets point, 
whose jets point at us, mm -hmm. they were observing a blazar in that direction, but not just observing it, it the, the blazar had been increasing its flux for the last uh, few months. And it was at the peak of this increase, a sevenfold increase in flux, that a neutrino came. And of course, once this coincidence was realized, you know, then every telescope was looking in this direction. And uh, finally, when we published in Science, you saw this the incredible amount of data at all wavelengths we, we collected on this object. Right. And, and you mentioned in passing, but I would like to expand upon it a little bit, a blazar, for those of you who, who aren't familiar with a blazar, uh, a blazar is, imagine you have a flashlight, right? And you have a flashlight sitting in an empty space, and uh, that flashlight could be t pointed at you, in which case it's very bright, or it could be pointed directly up in the air, in which case you, the, much of the light won't get to you. Uh, active galaxies, or supermassive black holes at the center of galaxies, are very much the same way. Some of them sitting out there in space could be pointed 90 degrees away from you. So you won't see much. It's not pointed at you. Some of them could be pointed sort of in your direction. And in the case of a blazar, it could be pointed directly at you where all of the light coming out of that flashlight or coming out of that active galaxy is coming right at you. And these are some of the most energetic places in the entire universe. Is that correct? Yeah, this is, you know, this... This is probably one of the top sources in luminosity in, in the sky because, uh, you know, first of all, to, to step back, uh, you have to realize that uh, to, to normalize things, you know, the neutrino we observed has like 100 times the energy of the protons that are accelerated at CERN in Geneva. And so the protons that made our neutrino, they have yet 20 times higher energy or so. So we're, these cosmic ray sources are accelerators that require an enormous power source. And of course, the power source in this case, as we found out, is a rotating black hole in an active galaxy. And in these active galaxies, you not only accelerate particles that fall into the black hole, but somehow the black hole doesn't manage to absorb all these particles. So some are deflected and are accelerated along the spin axis. Mm -hmm. And what we actually saw was acceleration along this jet. And the jet then happened to point at us. Yes. So these are a lot of coincidences. Right. But that's what happened. Yes. So that's how we found our first source of cosmic rays. I see a lot of questions. I see a lot of questions in, in the general public asking questions like, number one, how does Ice Cube work? And number two, why did you put it under the ice at the South Pole? Yeah, we haven't talked about Ice Cube yet. So Ice Cube and, uh, is... Uh, the first uh, neutrino detector that's large enough that it could possibly detect neutrinos coming from outer space. And uh, so the, you cannot afford to build a detector like you build a neutrino detector at, at Fermilab. You, know, you cannot afford to build something. You know, the best estimates 
over decades where that we needed something like kilometer cube mm -hmm. detector. Yeah. You know, that's something you cannot buy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you cannot afford to buy. So the original idea is that you would build this deep in the ocean. Uh, what you need is a very clear, optically clear, transparent medium. And deep ocean water is certainly a candidate. And in fact, as we speak, uh, there are physicists in Europe building such a detector in the Mediterranean Sea. Hmm. Where, what was the idea? Was there ever an idea to put ice? I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. Where was the idea to put ice cube if it well, were to go yeah. into the water? Okay, so... This idea originated uh, with a, uh, more than 30 years. In fact, I, I gave my first talk on this idea at a conference in Poland in October of 1987. So since then, we have been thinking about this. And it took a few years to actually realize that this may be doable. And then we had to build an R&D experiment that was a hundred times smaller than Ice Cube, that was called Amanda. And we demonstrated that it could see neutrinos. It was too small to see neutrinos from the cosmos, but we could see neutrinos that were produced uh, in the Earth's atmosphere. And that showed the technique. And then we eventually Ice Cube, uh, the construction to started in 2005, and took about five years, we built Ice Cube between 2005 and 2010. And so uh, that gave us the first time a chance to see neutrinos from the cosmos. Uh, we were lucky. We actually saw kind of the, the highest flux we expected. And so that was, uh, that, uh, that was a real breakthrough. In fact, uh, this uh, discovery of cosmic neutrinos was declared the breakthrough of the year in 2013. And uh, so, but since then, we have been collecting these neutrinos and couldn't identify where they come, came from. And that's what happened. And of course, you cannot ne produce neutrinos, this is simple particle physics, without having protons accelerated in the source. So you need a proton accelerator, in other words, a cosmic ray source to produce neutrinos. You produce neutrinos by the protons hit stuff where they are accelerated. The stuff may be light or other protons or nuclei or molecules. And then you produce pions that decay into neutrinos. So that was actually the original concept. If we could make a map of the sky in neutrinos, you make a map of the sky in the cosmic accelerator, the cosmic ray accelerators that emit this highest energy radiation that we see coming from the universe. I see. Now, I have heard of detectors, cosmic ray or neutrino detectors that have a some drum filled with liquid, right? Um, ice cube, ice cube doesn't fundamentally work this way. Does it use the ice cap as the drum of liquid? The, the ice is the detector. So let me now come to ice cube. Yeah. So you imagine you go to the geographic South Pole, then you go a mile deep and you imagine 
by the way, if you, at the geographic South Pole, one stands on three kilometers of ice. Mm -hmm. So you go a mile deep and uh, you imagine a cubic kilometer of natural ice. That's the detector. The ice is the detector. Mm -hmm. It's like the liquid in the drum. Yes. It's like the water in the super cake detector in, in Japan. Mm -hmm. And so then you have to instrument the ice because what you eventually, the way you detect neutrinos is that neutrinos occasionally will crash into a nucleus in the ice, mm -hmm. produce charged particles, and these charged particles emit light, blue light. And so we capture that blue light. And we capture it with light sensors, which you buy in Japan, actually, in our uh, photomultiplier tubes. So you fill this imaginary kilometer cube with 5,160 photomultiplier tubes, and that's ice cube. I see. So the major challenge is how do you put them in there? Mm -hmm. And uh, that we do with a technique called hot water drilling. So they are the, the light sensors are on strings. And these strings, uh, there are 86 of them. And so we melted these strings into the ice, and that's mm -hmm. how we built the kilometer cube. And so when a neutrino interacts from this light pattern it makes, the, the sensors map this light pattern and from that we can tell the direction of the neutrino, uh, what its energy is and what its flavor is. That's how, I see. It how precise is it? How precise is it at giving you a location? And how, and how do you well, make it better? Uh, at high energy, we can, uh, you know, by astronomical standards, it's not very precise. Mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, at high energy, we are finally approaching 0.1 degree. A high energy event we can reconstruct now to 0.2, 0.3 degrees. In fact, the coincidence, this was amazing, between the, the Fermi uh, direction and the ice cube direction, the ice cube neutrino direction, they, they coincided within 0 0.06 degrees much better than the resolution of either detector. Yeah. Uh, but so, uh, we are actually still working on this. IceCube was an incredible story because we discovered cosmic neutrinos in 2013, and then we kept making one breakthrough after the other, not all in ast astronomy. You know, we started uh, doing particle physics, we started to do and get results in a lot of things. We started looking for sterile neutrinos. And so then this came and we actually never went back and calibrated the detector uh, more carefully. And that's what we are doing now. So we are in a campaign to find a, a much better calibration of the detector. We, will improve the energy measurement, will improve the pointing. And uh, once we, we've done this, we have actually kept all our data. So once you calibrate it better, you not only have a better detector, mm -hmm. you have a better detector that has already operated for 10 years. Right. 
And so that's the, that's the next attraction. So we have several people who, like electron neutrinos and tau neutrinos, we didn't uh, uh, construct to better than 15, 10, 15 degrees. And with minimal, with the beginning of this plan, we have already reached five degrees. So progress is going to happen fast. I see. Is there... Now, when you put these devices into the ice, okay, are they all at equal equal distances beneath the ice? Or do you try to construct like some geographic shape? No, no, they, they fill. They, they fill in a kind of uniform way the, a block of ice. So what we do is uh, you melt a hole in the ice, and in the old hole then you sink a string. Mm-hmm. A string... The lowest kilometer of the string is instrumented with 60 photomultipliers, 60 light okay. sensors, each 17 meters apart. I see. You sink such a string, and then you, you let the water refreeze and you take data. Yes. Then you go 125 meters far, further mm-hmm. and do the same thing. You do this 86 times, and you have filled the kilometer cube. So they're not uniformly distributed. They are distributed on strings that are 125 meters apart in the horizontal direction Mm -hmm. and 17 meters apart in the vertical direction. I see. So, of course, you know, we can... uh, Drilling a string uh, takes... uh, To melt the ice, it takes more than two days and it takes more than... 1C130 of fuel mm-hmm. to, to actually melt the ice. So you you want to minimize the number of strings, but you still want them close enough so that you have good light detection. By the way, this is the luck we had. That was the big breakthrough. The absorption length of blue light in this ice is at the worst places better than the clearest water you can purify on Earth. You know, at the bottom of this detector, the light has an absorption length of more than 200 meters. Hmm. For reference, the clear water in the Super-K detector has an absorption length of 80 meters. I see. Can you explain what absorption length is for the listeners? Well, the absorption length, obviously, if you want to detect blue light in your detector... Uh, if it's important that it travels far enough. Yes. For instance, I told you the strings are at 125 meters. Mm-hmm. If light only traveled 15 meters, you know, this detector wouldn't work. Right. It's imperative that yes. uh, it travels 100 meters or more. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, this geometry wouldn't do the job. Oh, yeah. And so, of course, I mentioned already we spent uh, uh, a decade building this uh, Amanda R&D detector, which actually was mostly, uh, its main role was to to map the optical properties of the eyes, which is what we did. And then we discovered this large absorption length. Otherwise, I wouldn't be sitting here. <laughs> we had actually no idea when we started what to find. If you make a bubble, a block of 
bubble-free eyes in the lab, the absorption length, according to the literature, is only eight meters. But, you know, this is the ice in, you know, the ice in Antarctica is compacted snow. Mm-hmm. The snow in the detector we're talking about is 60,000 years old. It's ultra pure. Mm-hmm. That's, that's just the reason. The purer the, the snow, the clearer uh, the ice. Yes. It seems like every detection, every important detection in the history of astronomy, whether it be in radio or whether it be in, in cosmic rays or gravitational waves, there's always an, an air, uh, a little bit of serendipity to it. You know, it, something happened that was unexpected that allowed you to get yeah. to where you are. Yeah, there was a huge technical serendipity. <laughs> yes. Uh, can, you ex- can, yeah. can you explain what the timeline is like? Like, so you have this detection, and then you begin to follow up with observations in different wavelengths, in different ways. When does this sort of thing get announced to the public? How much vetting do you do? Explain this, the whole process. Oh. <laughs> that's, a, you know, that's a painful process. Uh, I, I always am amused when you, you actually don't ask, you know, better. But, uh, you know, reporters always ask me, you must have been very excited. And, uh, you know, that's not the case. Uh, You discover something. Mm -hmm. Your first reaction is, how could this be wrong? How could I have been fooled by the data? How could I have been fooled by nature? And so you go in this mode. When we discovered this the multi-messenger astronomy discovery was different. You know, first of all, it took days and weeks to develop and get the news from all these telescopes and get the results put together. But then what happened is, if you look carefully, we, we actually published two papers in Nature. And uh, the second paper we look back at our archival data. We have 10 years of data, some mm-hmm. taken during construction, uh, but still, we had 10 years of data. We looked through it, and we found, actually, that there was a, we observed a huge burst from the source in 2014. And that one was just spectacular. It, it were, uh, we discovered there were 19 events in uh, 150 days. You know, this is something we had never seen before. Yeah. And so I'm, there's no doubt this, you know, there, there, there was no analysis, no trials, no, you just look at this thing, it's there in your data. And then, of course, once you know that there is something, we definitely discover neutrinos from this direction in the sky, then the multi-messenger astronomy you stop worrying that it was an accidental coincidence. Right. So you have to think it backward. And I, you know, I can live in peace with this. But when we discovered, and even now, it took us, you know, more than six months to get a paper out. Mm -hmm. Because you, you know, you, it's an ongoing process. How can this actually be an accident? And, once we knew about the ice cube burst in 2014, 
then uh, we stopped worrying, but that took a while. Right. And so uh, there, there were a, a lengthy period before we looked back in our ice cube data, could this be accidental? And so that's what you worry about. You don't get excited. And I can tell you when we discovered cosmic neutrinos, I, there was one night, there wasn't one night I didn't wake up thinking about <laughs> what could be wrong. <laughs> mm -hmm. how, how do we run this backwards if we later found out we were fooled in some way? Right. So uh, that's how... You know, that's how you live through discoveries. It's no fun. Yes. But the, there's eventually a point where where the discovery has been vetted enough that you get some relief and you get some joy, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. It, it, uh, you know, I, I never... I think now, I mean, we, we, we have... You know, all the places, the pieces have fallen together in such a way that there cannot be any doubt anymore. You know, there was a lingering doubt that uh, we had to discover, you know, if this were a truly uh, cosmic flux, s some of the neutrinos, approximately one third, had to be Newtown neutrinos. So we tried very hard to tell electron from town neutrinos, but this is very difficult. And so then you start, you know, your worries never end. And you say, where are the town neutrinos? So finally, in the last year, we found a, a rather convincing town neutrino in, in the cosmic flux. But so, uh, you know, it's an ongoing process. It's... Yeah, I don't think I now lay awake at night anymore, just in case you wonder that this whole <laughs> thing could be a, a joke played on, on us by nature. Yeah. Right, yeah. No, there's definitely a, a future in it because the, the discovery was convincing. Uh, when did the actual discovery happen? I know that the news was released in July of this year. When was the actual detection? Oh, yeah. The detection was, uh, I can tell you by the second, but it was on September 22nd of 2017. Okay, and you so know, it's, it's an amazing thing. We, we had just set up this system. I mean, being unable to figure out where the neutrinos came from ourselves, I mean, it was obvious, let's send out our information and see if someone else can figure out which is exactly what happened. And the system had not been sent, set up for that long. And so what it does is actually the computers that reconstruct a neutrino in its direction, and if the energy estimate from the first reconstruction is high enough, they send this telegram, about less than one a month, actually. I see. And we had no idea whether people actually looked or not, right? Mm -hmm. So you send out this what's called the GCN telegram, and it but it goes automatic. You know the computer sends it out within forty three seconds. Wow! A telegram was sent to reconstruction happened, and telegram was sent to the other to the astronomical community. We only get a message on our phone on on our computer. Right. We get an email message. And this was the 10th neutrino sent. And so that 
getting an email message that Neutrino was sent was uh, is not that big of a deal after it's the tenth one, right? Okay, another alert. Yeah. But then it took. Uh, uh, it was actually someone in Japan who worked on both Fermi and talked regularly to the Ice Cube collaborators we have in Japan, in Chiba University. Uh, that was the connection that actually Yunten looked at the Fermi data. And, uh, and that's how it ha- happened in practice. Had, 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 uh, had that person not notified you, do you think that the the discovery would have gone unnoticed for a, a long time? Not forever, but for a, a, a decent bit of time? No, I think that's uh, that's the other thing about Fermi and Ice Cube, and also gravitational waves, actually. We keep our, all our data. Right. We actually don't have to do this in real time. Right. However... A great part of this story was that, uh, you know, there are a lot of blazers in the sky. The first question is, can this be accidental? Mm-hmm. But a great part of this story is that it was like a triptych. It was Fermi, Ice Cube, and then Magic. And Magic is a Erschrenkov telescope. So it can measure gamma rays that are, have higher energy than Fermi. But it can it uses the atmosphere as a detector, pretty much like we use the eyes as a detector. Mm. It's pretty much all similar. But they can only they have to point at the source and have to make re- observations in real time. So later eventually someone would have to would have discovered the Fermi Ice Cube coincidence. But it would have been too late to point the other telescopes. Right. How do you... How do you uh, oh, sorry. Because it was important, because it discovered that uh, the spectrum actually extended to TV gamma rays, hmm. which makes it a very special blazer. Yes. How do you... Do the, do the optical astronomers or the radio astronomers, do they just see this telecon and then immediately point their telescopes? What is the process? Like, how do you alert them? We need to look at this direction. You you have to ask them, but you can tell you uh, I can tell you we were very surprised when we started realizing you know that all these telescopes were pointing at the neutrino direction. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I mean they have to take they have to to take the decision. It's it's sociologically an interesting process which hasn't come to any maturity yet. This is the first event, but you know, if you put yourself in the shoes of an astronomer, uh, she sees that telegram mm-hmm. and has to decide whether to spend time pointing to this and follow up on on, on this telegram because. Telescope time is very precious. Yes. And I could have imagined someone saying, you know, oh, not another ice cube neutrino. <laughs> and, uh, but, and especially the TV telescopes, they had, to, they had to decide 
it's not easy to, to detect the TV gamma rays from this source. Mm -hmm. So the magic telescope this, they actually decided to spend 12 hours looking at this source, which was an amazing commitment. Of course, they won the lottery. Right. And uh, so, but you know, everybody decides from themselves. I think a lot of the optical telescopes, they followed that because we realized the source was known before it, you know, was one of many blazars, thousands actually of blazars that we can identify. And so in high energy gamma rays, so the question was, uh, how far away is it? We didn't know the redshift. Mm -hmm. And so uh, uh, the telescope tried to, to measure the optic, the, tried to find the host galaxy to find the absorption lines corresponding to the whole galaxy. But the high, the high energy radiation was so strong, they couldn't see. They were blinded yeah. by the high energy radiation. And it's only like days, couple weeks later, that uh, an optical telescope in, in the Canary Islands uh, identify three absorption lines and measure the redshift. And of course, that was the next surprise. This source is not nearby. It's four billion light years, 1.7 gigaparsecs away. So there's obviously something special about this source. Otherwise, we would see there, there are blazars that are similar right. in, in properties that are 10 times closer. Why don't we see one of them first? So this is science. There are now a lot of new questions out there yes. that we'll have to answer. Yes. And for the listener, uh, if you heard uh, Dr. Halsen say redshift, and you're not familiar with redshift, as, as light travels through the universe, you could think of it as like a slinky. And the further it travels, the more stretched out that slinky gets, and we call that stretching redshift. Now, for those of you who understand redshift, you might hate that uh, example, but nevertheless, for those of you who don't understand redshift, uh, what, what we say when we say something has a high redshift is we essentially just say it's far away. Just to, to clear up any, any misconceptions about that. And this source was far away. You said 4 billion light years, right? Yeah. And yeah, it's not in our close neighborhood. And of course, that was, we would not have found this source when we, I mean, Ice Cube, it's kind of strange because we fully expected to first see neutrino sources from our own galaxy. Right. We, did, we still haven't seen sources from our own galaxy. I think we will, and we're working on it. Yes. That's maybe the next attraction. But uh, so we saw sources that were extragalactic, which was our first surprise. And then when we were trying to identify the neutrinos with astronomical sources, we were looking for nearby objects. Mm -hmm. We were not looking for something, you know, at uh, four billion light years away. Right. Now, is Ice Cube going to be the tool that's able to, to find those local neutrinos, to find the neutrinos in our own galaxy? Or are we going to have to devise something different? Yeah, I mean, we can, you never know, right? Right. Because even with Ice Cube, we built Ice Cube, and it was like a consensus conclusion 
that a kilometer cube was the right volume. We now know it is. Yeah. And of course, now we are thinking about building something 10 times bigger. That's mm -hmm. the normal way things go. But you didn't want to start that way. You want to kind of, and one kilometer we thought was needed for uh, detection, and we were lucky. We were right. Yes. Uh, but the same estimates exist for sources in our galaxy. And these estimates are actually much better. Mm -hmm. So we should see these sources, and, and we are working on it. Yes. The fact that we haven't seen them yet, I don't think we have been quite looking the right way. What we have been doing mostly, because it's easy, is try to find a whether there is a concentration of neutrinos along the plane of the galaxy. Mm -hmm. And that hasn't been successful. But we know from gamma ray observations that there are a few very bright high energy sources, specifically from the Hawk experiment in, in Mexico. And so we are now looking for these sources. I see. And is the expansion of Ice Cube going to be in the same location and, and on the South Pole? Yeah, build it. you build it around... Uh, around ice cube right and now is ice cube ice cubes not like other detectors where you have to shut it down in order to expand right no. we, we can expand you just and detect. Do it. yes yeah. that's why when i said we have 10 years of data only six of these years or seven seven are with uh the full detector i see yes so the others we took data while we were constructing it our, yes. first, our first astronomical limits, of course, not results, was, was with nine strings in the ice. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot of promise here. And when we make the detector bigger, uh, do you expect to see... What do you expect to see when we make it bigger? Do you expect to see far more detections? Do you expect to see more accurate detections? What is expected? Both. Both. Okay. Both. Yeah, that's the great thing. You gain in size, so things, you know, like this TXS source, mm -hmm. in the last 10 years had one big outburst, which, by the way, was not the one in September of last year. It was in 2014. Right. So such a thing happens once every 10 years. Well, if you have a 10 times bigger detector, I don't have to explain. It's yes. one a year. So for multi-messenger astronomy, this is, you know, you need a bigger detector. But also the accuracy will be better, right? You, you, will, uh, you will, these light patterns will be larger and you mm -hmm. get more light collected, you get more accuracy. Yes. And, and uh, so it's, it's both. Yes, and a great thing about get, improving the accuracy, uh, this is always important, especially in multi-messenger astrophysics, yeah, exactly. because uh, if you can improve the accuracy of one detector, that's going to have a ripple effect in the sense that these telescopes that are going to be trying to look for different signals, they're not going to have to search. Uh, there are some, specifically gravitational wave signals, where the accuracy isn't very good, and a lot of these telescopes will waste time trying to search the, the area, Oh, and in fact, they, they sometimes find nothing. But if we can improve the, the resolution, like, like you're talking, then all of a sudden, telescopes don't have to waste time. They can point right at the source. 
and see it in action. And, and that's, that's important. Yeah. By the way, gravitational wave detectors, of course, they are trying to solve that problem as well. Yes. Uh, by having multiple detectors spread, uh, they're building, LIGO is building mm -hmm. LIGO India. Yes. And that will help things a lot. Yes, it, it's a... The, the Virgo detector in Europe helps. Mm -hmm. Yes. So they are going to make rapid progress in that too. Exactly. And so in fact, you know, that's our next attraction sometime uh, next year, hopefully not too deep in the year, they will uh, start taking data again with LIGO Virgo. Mm -hmm. We That's our next opportunity for hopefully seeing neutrinos and gravitational waves from a neutron star merger. Yes, and, and, and again, that's just continuing to evolve is, is so important in this field and actually in, in life in general. And that's what I really like about this field of multi-messenger astronomy. I, the evolution is constant. We are constantly evolving. And, and like you were talking, when you, when you make the discovery, you don't just sit back on your recliner and eat shrimp and drink cocktails for a week. You keep going. And it's so important. Uh, and that's why I think that the, that multi-messenger or just astrophysics in general is really a, a good model to do a lot of things. You keep going, uh, in your life. Uh, it is amazing the way that you maybe are going to be nominated for a Nobel Prize for the, these types of findings, but you don't take a break. You keep going. The Nobel Prize has been awarded three times for discoveries concerning the nature or the detection, detection of neutrinos, and I'm not on the Nobel Committee. That shouldn't be a surprise to you, um, but you may very well be a nominee this year. What do you think about that? I can tell you, this is not something I lay awake <laughs> about at night. Right, and you can't, and of course. You certainly don't do this uh, for rewards. Right. I, I think, uh, you know, scientists do science, I think at least most of them, mm -hmm. uh, just because they cannot do anything else. Yes. Uh, they... I mean, I remember my John Bacall, who was one of my heroes in this field, who unfortunately died uh, a, f a, f a few years ago. He always used to say there are uh, two secrets that the general public doesn't know about scientists. The first is that uh, science doesn't evolve in a logical way. You you try to do something, you go down dead ends, you make mistakes. Mm -hmm. This is the type of thing that the public cannot imagine. They think scientists don't make mistakes. Everything goes in a straight line. The second thing he said that we have to keep secret is that we would do this even if we were not paid for it. Right. And, uh, you know, that's the joy of doing it. And, uh, uh, Prizes, you know, they they matter for funding and yes. for things like that, but they have really nothing to do with the joy of doing of doing science. Right. I I, I always I, I do like to talk about this. I think that, at least in my mind, 
Maybe scientists are different than me. The prize doesn't matter, but it doesn't not matter. Okay, when I mentioned the idea of you winning a Nobel Prize, I, I saw a little bit of a smile, and the smile might have been just natural, you being yourself. But I think that the thrill of, of being recognized as the world champion for a year, uh, the similar to the way you win a Super Bowl, I, th- I think that that doesn't motivate you. It doesn't drive you. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying it has to feel good. It has to be a, a good feeling to know that something you did that's different. That's absolutely true. You know, and the, the attention, the recognition that this experiment is getting, that's an absolute joy. Yes. And that's happening. And, uh, you know, that's exciting. But whether, you know, it's actually recognized by a prize or not is, is kind of secondary. But the recognition, especially from your peers, and in our case, from the general public, I mean, this multi-messenger event made an incredible impact with the public, actually. Yes. And so that, that, uh, that's fantastic. That's different. Yes. And, you know, if I can make a personal remark, when I finished my undergraduate university in Belgium, I got a high school teaching job. It was never my dream to do any science or to get a PhD. Mm-hmm. And this is so far beyond anything I ever expected. <laughs> yes. That, uh, that's why I not, don't play awake at night about Nobel Prize. Yes. No, yeah, I, I completely understand about um, not laying awake at night, right? And I think that uh, an NFL player probably shouldn't weigh, lay awake at night um, hoping that they can win the Super Bowl. I don't think that an MLB player should lay awake at night hoping that they'll win the, the World Championship. But I do think that when you show up for work, that is a driving factor. Uh, but in science, there is you, you are working for a, a reward, and that reward isn't a prize. The reward is discovery. So um, scientists would do science without getting paid. I agree. But you are getting paid. You're getting paid in the currency you hope for, and that currency is the currency of discovery. Yeah, that's right. So We can agree on that. Yes. So that is something that um, a lot of people – I agree with something you said earlier, that the general public – tends to think, and I'm paraphrasing, that scientists don't make many mistakes, okay? In the last two, last month and a half, my entire livelihood, my entire uh, uh, graduate work has been one giant mistake. And I have never learned more than in those two months. Those two months have been formative months for me. And that's the point of, of scientific discovery and exploration, is that you're always going to screw up. You're constantly going to screw up, but those screw-ups don't get publicity. What gets publicity is exactly what you have, and that is successful experiments. But along I, the way... I, yeah. On that point, the most excited I ever got, and I think it's true for many of my colleagues in, in who have been on this trip with me, some of them for 30 years, actually, was not the multi-messenger event, was not discovering cosmic neutrinos. The most exciting, by far, point was when we actually realized the technique worked and we could uh, detect atmospheric neutrinos. Right. That's by far the greatest moment of, of uh, 
joy and discovery for us. Right. It, it was, I imagine it was a validation of, of, of decades and decades of, of ideas. And it's scary to think that something you've worked on for so long cannot pan out. So I, I understand why that would be the, the, the shining yeah, moment. Yeah, it was for you. scary. It was scary because, you know, we could have wasted 10 years of our lives at that point, almost mm. 10 years. But we also had spent a lot of money and you, you know, you, we had spent enough money that we couldn't fail anymore. So yes. it was, uh, it, it was just an incredible relief when this thing worked. And, Yes. Can you yeah. talk about how hard it is to how hard it was in the beginning to convince people to convince uh, grant givers to convince people to give you money to cause this project? It's so hard to explain to people. It's so hard to to tell people I need money so that I can build a giant structure underneath the ice in the South Pole. Well, it was incredibly easy. And first, uh, for two reasons. You know, the, the case for making a map of the universe in, in neutrinos, that works easy. I mean, nobody actually ever said, look, this is uninteresting. We are not going to learn anything from this. Or they may say this is not going to work. Mm -hmm. That was the real problem we had to solve in the beginning. But... Uh, we started relatively small, and uh, I, to, to give you the first step we made was actually we got money from the National Science Foundation uh, because they, the program officers can actually give a small grant, I, if I remember well, it was $50,000, mm -hmm. which they can give at their own discretion without review. I see. Because they told me, this will never get approved right. <laughs> if you review it. So we actually started with 50000 and uh, and uh, started doing tests mm -hmm. of the idea and, and of the drilling especially. That was the big problem. We had the huge problem to solve, you know, the the elephant in the room was the drilling. Uh, yeah. The rest was not trivial, uh, but uh, far from trivial, but relatively easy and better understood. Uh, and uh, then originally we got uh, funding because we sold it originally as a dark matter detector. Because that was the time that, you know, if you could detect supersymmetry and die in WIMPs. And so gradually, we always had the intention from day zero in this idea to build a kilometer cube detector. That idea was around actually since the last, the end of the 60s and the early 70s. Mm -hmm. And so with the work through the 70s, that this was the right scale became more solid. Although even when we built Ice Cube, there was no guarantee that we would detect neutrinos from the cosmos. Yeah. What kind but of we, what kind of testing can you do with fifty thousand dollars? I picture fifty thousand dollars to be enough to buy no, you plane tickets see, to the South Pole. You see the I actually cannot remember what we did with the fifty thousand dollars. But uh, the the first thing we did is uh, deploy 
photomultipliers in a hole that had already been drilled in Greenland. Okay. And it was a string of uh, five photomultipliers, and uh, the hole was a, a, a hole, uh, a gist hole, that actually did coring. It was three kilometers deep mm-hmm. and empty. It was not, you know, they didn't melt. They, they just took the eyes out. And so we, that, that was one of the things we did with it. But, uh, you know, the, the logistics at the South Pole, uh, it changed later. But uh, in, at that time, all the logistics was free. You asked for planes. Mm-hmm. You asked for drilling. Uh, and everything would be paid for. So you just, uh, our first test at the South Pole involved, you know, putting one or two photomultipliers uh, a few hundred meters deep uh, or as far as our drill could get us at the time. I see. So, yeah, this started very small. Mm-hmm. Now, when you say tests, did these preliminary photo... Uh, did these preliminary detectors actually detect anything? Well, the the tests were are the critical thing we had to find out is what the optics of the eyes was. Okay. And so that took uh, half a decade. I see. To figure out, uh, you know, what uh, the optical properties of the ice was mm-hmm. and in fact our first intention was to build a detector at one kilometer not 1.5 kilometer deep mm-hmm. and uh, we found out there were bubbles in the ice at one kilometer and the bubbles scatter photons and all the information of these beautiful patterns light patterns that neutrinos make when they interact they were lost and so, yeah, we had to make our way. Uh, this was is the John Bacala uh, mode of operation, right? You just we worked our we tumbled our way through it, mm-hmm. and finally ended up in the right place at the right, you know, with the right eyes. How did you know that if you went deeper, there wouldn't be any bubbles? Well, when we we deployed. Four small strings at one kilometer. Mm-hmm. And uh, we actually measured the optical properties and we saw the density of bubbles disappear along the string. I see. And we made a model for how the. This was actually a, a major discovery because the idea was that bubbles collapsed under pressure. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, so there couldn't be bubbles below 400 meters uh, depth. Mm-hmm. That's the notion we start with, you know. And that obviously we've, we realized that I won't go into how we modeled the, the disappearance of the bubbles, but it predicted that there would be no bubbles at 1400 meters. And we later found out this is the case. And that's why the detector is between 1,500 meters and 2,500 meters. I see. And are there virtually zero bubbles at that depth? Or there can are no bubbles. Zero bubbles, okay. Every bubble has disappeared, yeah. There are no bubbles. So the only thing left that scatters ice is, is dust. 
I see. And so, uh, and of course, if you collect photons from hundreds of meters away, they're going to scatter of dust. Mm -hmm. And when we we interpret the light patterns, we actually model this. So we take the scattering into account of the light. So you have to model this in detail. So it's so our precision depends on how well we did. To, uh, understand the optics of the ice, right? But even even though the 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 ice at the South Pole isn't isn't perfect, right? We have bubbles. We could have dust. It's still much better than you could ever do in a laboratory. Is that correct? Yeah, you cannot make this ice yeah. in a lab. And you mentioned that at the a, a, a few minutes ago, but I just wanted to to clarify that for the listener. This could not be a laboratory project. No, and it also couldn't be because you know. You cannot buy a kilometer of cube of something, right? right. Yeah. And, and correct. Yeah. yeah. What What are the alternatives to using ice? You mentioned that you can use water. Is there anything else? Yeah. Uh, no, that's uh, th those are basically the two options, and they are both being pursued. I mean, the, there there was actually an attempt that preceded Ice Cube to build such a detector of the coast of Hawaii. And uh, they were unlucky. They, they failed and got their funding cut and couldn't continue. But they actually, they contributed a lot to the field. They discovered and invented many of the techniques that we are still using. So this was tried before. And uh, in recent years, the, an effort, a new effort like this, uh, originated in Europe, off the coast of France. They built a small detector, just the equivalent of Amanda, mm -hmm. which they operated. And so now they are building a kilometer cube detector, even bigger eventually, uh, of the, the boot of Italy in the, the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. And so I don't see any reason why they wouldn't succeed. And so it will be great actually to also for astronomy, you know, to have one detector in the north and one in the south using complementary techniques. I see. You, you mentioned the, the scientists working off the coast of Hawaii and how their funding got cut after a series of failures or a series of uh, unfortunate failures. Were you? Did you feel like your project, Ice Cube? Did you feel like that was ever close to to getting cut in any way? Well, not getting. Actually, I never worried about getting funding cut. the The most interesting talk I could give is how many times I thought that this project had failed. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, I. That's why it was such so exciting to see atmospheric neutrinos. You know, right. the technique actually worked. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And well, then you could worry about building a large detector. Yeah. But yeah, that's because we, at so many points, uh, we thought, you know, this is the end of us. Mm -hmm. For instance, well... I think uh, when we got stuck in bubbles at one kilometer, I really thought that was the end of it, that they wouldn't give us a second try. 
Um, but then SF, you know, they... Uh, I have seen an interview of one of our program officers at the time, John Lynch, who was very important to, in launching this experiment, who said that his reaction was that, uh, you know, this is a hard thing to do, it's new. He never believed this would go smoothly. And, and he didn't think anything of trying again at, at larger depth. Yeah. Yeah, it is a truly fascinating story to see. And Ice Cube isn't alone in that. There's a lot of these large collaborative uh, efforts that go through periods of, of very rough terrain. Um, and it's amazing because it, it does seem like a lot of them recover and and show promise. And then that's just the hard work that the people like you and your team put in put into making it work. Um, in terms of the specific idea for Ice Cube, I see a ton of articles online calling you the grandfather of Ice Cube. <laughs> okay, well, I, I think I even saw a comic... I don't remember who published the comic, but they, they titled Your Life Neutrino Man. Um, what? Th- there's got to be other people that have worked alongside you tirelessly throughout this process. Uh, can, oh. you describe, can you describe how much of a collaborative effort this has been? Oh, well, uh, you know, that's a, a long story. In fact, if you... I mean, the, the thing you have to know is that I'm a theoretical physicist. Mm-hmm. I've never done an experiment in my life. Uh, so, and I'm still a theoretical physicist. I may get in, involved in analyzing data, but I never build anything. Yeah. Uh, I never held a screwdriver in my hand except to work on my bicycle. And so, obviously, the credit has has to be shared. But uh, it's not just you. You refer to the team, but a lot of the exploratory and discovery work work, work of making that detector work was actually done by a pretty small group of people. You know, mm-hmm. the author of twenty, yeah, who worked together for a decade mm-hmm. and this out yeah and uh, it's only later that ice cube developed in fact it's still a small collaboration right we are 300 people yeah and and we are doing many different things in fact uh, more than half the collaboration is not working on anything we have talked about today right you know they're studying the neutrinos themselves for mm-hmm. instance yeah yeah and uh so, uh, I mean, there are real heroes in this story. Uh, I, of course, cannot, you know, start naming names or yes, any yeah. fact that, uh, but, uh, you know, the people, the, the electronics design, even the, to, to read out the data, of course, the, the way this works is, you, you put these photomultipliers in the eyes and uh, you have to supply them. They are connected by a cable, each of them, because mm-hmm. you have to supply them with high voltage. But 
what we actually do is read out the photomultiplier signal, transform it into an electrical signal, and send the electrical signal back over the same cable that brings down the high voltage. And the, how you collect, you, how you digitize the signals coming out of the photomultiplier, you know, when you look at it, this, this is now technology of 20 years ago, but it's still a beautiful piece of art. I, I have yes. nothing to do with it. So there are many contributions like this to this project that, uh, you know, are uh, often not highlighted. But uh, I could go on and on. Uh, there was some, some beautiful physics, experimental physics involved in building this experiment. And uh, if you are really interested, uh, there is a science writer named Mark Bowen who wrote a book on this uh, project that came out less than a year ago. Mm -hmm. It's called The Telescope in the Eyes. So if you really want to... to get a detailed history of it, you can go and read it in his book. Yes, and I'll certainly advertise that uh, because, because I did see that. Um, I saw that advertised, and it it's amazing a, that the... It has a beautiful discussion of the history of the neutrino. Does it? Yeah. Yes. Um, it's, it's amazing that a, a project like ice cube could could have an entire book written about it in just a few years a decade or a little over um i think that that's as long as ice cube has actually been being built and operating is that correct yeah i mean uh, ice cube uh, the the first ideas were uh, the late 80s and then we we started to to study the optics in the first uh, the first half of the 90s, build Amanda in the second half of the 90s, and uh, then immediately when we discovered atmospheric neutrinos, we wrote the ice cube proposal, I think in, nine, uh, in 1999. Hmm. And uh, so then we build it 2005 to 2010. I see. Yeah, it's when I think about the now I'm like, you, yeah, I'm a theorist. OK, I don't like to get on the engineering side of things. I don't like to have to actually build things from the ground up. Um, I don't find much joy in doing that. But I see a lot of people who do find joy in doing that. And it's it's truly is remarkable the people like even the the problem you were speaking about of, of actually drilling and, and inserting the detectors and then refreezing the ice around them even that i imagine had to be a painstaking process that required a lot of collaboration between a lot of engineers or or people of the sort and well, i can that, oh, yep that was is another example I mean, this drill, you, you don't go and buy it in Texas from the oil industry, right? Right. I mean, nobody had ever built such a thing. And uh, we ran into problems with that, that, you know, s several times we thought that the project had failed, not because of ice or because of anything we did, but because we couldn't build this drill. The, for instance, the drill involves 
a hot water hose that's uh, about this size mm -hmm. and uh, two and a half kilometers long. And for a while, everybody told us you cannot build such a thing. They cannot, you know, you hang it in hot water over two and a half kilometers, it will just collapse. Mm -hmm. And that problem was solved. Then the other problem is how do you supply the hot water? so that uh, when two days later a module comes through, the hole is just wide enough. That's an incredible mathematical problem that got solved by one of our graduate students. Hmm. It's in fact a very difficult mathematical problem. So this is the type, and of course that made this problem. I mean, I don't want to give the wrong impression, right? I mean, this... Uh, was an incre incredible exciting ride. Mm -hmm. But it was because you always start running into these problems. Yes. And when you do something like this, you know, you have to realize whether you're a theorist or an experimentalist or what you learned in graduate school doesn't matter. Yeah. You go from problem to problem and have to solve them yes. or have to find people to solve them. Correct. Uh, yeah. You, so that's what's so exciting about this project. Now, in my mind, the fact the discovery is is much sweeter because you had such a problem getting the the project running. Do absolutely. you agree with that? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Do you think yeah. if it worked right away, you wouldn't have felt much of the the joy at all? I cannot imagine that it would have worked right away after what we went through. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yes. Well, if there's anything else you'd like to say, anything else you'd like to advertise? No, I've already said much too much, I think. Okay, well, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, Dr. Francis Halsen. You are a person who's going to be in the news arguably a lot this year. You've already been. You're probably going to be a lot more. And and I hope that uh, that you continue doing the work you're doing. It's, it's incredible. It's helping every avenue of of this field in some way whether it's something as minuscule as improving the way a drill works in ice or or something as monumental as discovering neutrinos the project is is an incredible and, and all the people you work with i'm sure are, are incredibly ecstatic to to work with you and alongside you and work on this project and with that being said francis it was a pleasure to talk to you and we're done thank you yep.